0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bible and turn to... Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking at three verses today, 16 through 18. We're going to get an interlude here as Jesus has been teaching about the parables, different parables. Last week, we looked at the shameless supervisor, the shrewd dude. And uh, then next week, we're going to get into an interesting one of the rich man, Lazarus and the rich man. But we got just kind of an interlude today. And we're going to look at that as you take your Bible and we looked at proclaiming the promises. Let me ask you, anyone here likes to play card games or board games with with other people? Have you ever played a card game with someone or just take Monopoly and you're playing with someone and then you invite someone outside your family or outside your group to play and you start to play and you realize you both are playing by different rules? Don't you love that? Uh, uh, we, we will do that once we hey, here's a card game, and all of a sudden we realize we're playing the same card game. We might call it different names, but then we find out that we actually play by different rules, like Monopoly. I mean, everyone plays Monopoly differently. I play Monopoly by just shutting it back up and putting it in the closet. I mean, is, you know, why do I want to lose that life, a game, when I'm already losing money in the real life, you know? Or how about this? How many of you ever play with someone, whether it's basketball, it's golf, it's, it's whatever it may be. It could be something just simple. But they always seem to change the rules in the middle of the game. I just I have a grandson that's like that is we play a game and he'll make up a game but the game all the rules change as we go along and they're always to his benefit and so I've I've learned now just to kind of just sit there and wait until he talks himself out and then we try to play the game for a little bit but he loves to do that and that can be kind of irritating and be frustrating sometimes it can be exciting as you try to say okay now let's play it this way and you say okay I, I kind of like that but That's kind of the background of what we're looking here when we consider the conflict between the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and Jesus. To them, there's a new rule change that they're not quite understanding. And I want to look at that today as we continue on. But again, just as a matter of view, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem, right? He has a divine appointment at Calvary. He has a divine appointment at the cross. And He is not going to miss that date. It's been preordained, ordained from the beginning of time, Scripture says. And so Jesus has His face set towards Jerusalem. And He's on that way. He's moving from the from Galilee. And He's walking down the road, stopping at different villages and towns to share with them the gospel. And also spending that period precious time speaking to his disciples, giving them some last teachings and even some warnings to prepare them about the kingdom of God. He knows that his time is short. There's going to be a time where he's going to send to the Father and he is not in the flesh going to be with them any longer. His three years of earthly ministry are coming to a close. So he's trying to prepare them for that last time. But as he does that, it seems like the Pharisees and religious leaders always want to interject themselves into the conversation. And you know how frustrating that can be when someone walks up and they want to put their two cents in. But Jesus is using even that conflict as a teaching moment so that he may win some of them and as he invites them to into the kingdom. And so as we come to this message today, we find that many have been drawn to the message and the ministry and the man of Jesus Christ. People are coming from all over. The problem is not so much that he's bringing people into his ministry, and into his message, but it's the wrong kind of people according to the Pharisees and religious leaders. These are task collectors. These are sinners. These are people that are below them. They're, these are people you should have contempt for, and they don't understand, Jesus, why are you spending time With these people. And that's what Jesus has been addressing with these parables the lost coin, the lost son, and the lost sheep, and even as we talk about the shameless steward. They're amazed at his teaching. They recognize something is different. That's what's drawing them in. They recognize something is special about this man. He's different than other prophets and other teachers, other rabbis, other leaders. They're amazed at his teaching. They're astonished at his miracle-working power. They're awestruck by his kind and tender manner. He is so different. However, the religious leaders themselves, the ones who should have opened their arms and received him with open arms and embraced Jesus are actually the ones who have rejected him. Their jealousy and hatred have led them to seek not only his arrest, but his demise. They want to shut him up at any cost they continually criticize question and ridicule him at every opportunity in today's passage Luke records two statements of Jesus to show the folly of the religious leader's position and their error in how they are perceiving what he is doing So with that, let's look at Luke chapter 16. Look look at verse 16. Again, the first part will be on the monitor. But again, bring your Bibles. I encourage you take notes, write in it, uh, and and get really involved in it as we go on. Verse 16. Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Father, thank you for your word. It is precious to us. From it, we can find the words of life, the ones that can reconcile us back to you. It's the words that draw our attention, not only to your revealed uh, word, but also to what you expect for us and how we're to relate to one another. So, Father, let's open up our minds and hearts as we open this passage to receive it with gladness, but also with the responsibility that we have to learn what it says, to read it correctly, to interpret it, and then apply it to our lives as the Holy Spirit would. And so we pray that you would do so this morning. In your name. Amen. Again, Jesus is responding to the hypocrisy and ridicule of the Pharisees, So it's good to keep that in mind as we read this. And they despise him because of his popularity and the resounding response of the people to his call that the kingdom of God has arrived. Not only the kingdom of God has arrived, but he is saying, we are inviting you into this kingdom. So they are responding to that call. And he's said that the kingdom of God is also accepting all those who repent of their sin and put their trust in. In Christ. This here is disturbing to them. To them, this is a new message. The religious leaders view this proclamation as a threat to their authority, a threat to their way of life, and a threat to their livelihood. Earlier, you'll see here on the monitor that Jesus said early in his ministry, when he took the scroll, the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, and he read it in front of the synagogue, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he has done exactly that for three years. Luke has done a masterful job of recording the teachings of Jesus along with his miracles that demonstrate his power and authority over the natural and supernatural world. Whether it was sickness and death, winds and waves, or demons, Jesus had displayed his rightful claim to be the very Son of God. This is not set well with the religious leaders as their hardened hearts are exposed in the light of Jesus' ministry. In other words, the religious leaders are not excited about the arrival of the kingdom. They are, in fact, rejecting Jesus' message. They are, in fact, uh, rejecting his ministry and even the man himself. Jesus pointed out the failure of the religious leaders to respond positively to the proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom of God and to heed the words of the law and prophets and that's very important because these were men who said that they followed the law and the prophets many were struggling to understand Jesus claims that the kingdom of God has arrived and how one might enter into the kingdom the disciples themselves were often confused and misunderstood his teachings. At issue is the relationship between the law and the kingdom. He was a blasphemer to his critics. Jesus was committing high treason against Yahweh, Moses, and the law. He was a blasphemer who was encouraging the people to ignore the law and the prophets, along with the teachings and traditions that the religious leaders had been setting down now for centuries. To set them straight, Jesus points out that the law had a purpose. Its purpose was to proclaim the promise of the kingdom of God. Let me say again, the purpose of the law was to proclaim the promises of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law to fulfill it. In verse 16, we see the law when he speaks about the law and the prophets. The law is the law of Moses as dictated in the first five books of the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. While the prophets, when he speaks of the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament. We're talking about Psalms, Lamentations, Jeremiah, and so on and so forth. So Jesus here proclaims that the Old Testament period ended with John the Baptist who served as a transitional figure. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he was also who was the first one who declared, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, he says, of whom I said, speaking of Jesus, this is the man who comes, who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, remember, that's interesting because John was actually born before Jesus. But he recognizes that Jesus is more than just a mere man, but he is God himself. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So Jesus pointed them back and says, listen, the law and the prophets were till John. There was a purpose for proclaiming the promise. And what was the promise? The kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is coming. But now he says he now has arrived. With this declaration, John is proclaiming that a new era has arrived, bringing a new paradigm. I'm going to say this because they're here today, but there's some pastor up in Grace Community, up in the, uh, up there in Southern California, and he notes this, that John the Baptist's ministry marked the turning point of redemptive history. Prior to that, the great truths of Christ's kingdom, listen to this, we're speaking of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were veiled. Think of a veil, a wedding veil, or some type of blindfold. They were veiled in types and shadows of the law and the promised and the writings of the prophets. So in other words, it is true that the religious leaders, those of, of the Old Testament, those reading it before Christ came, they were a little bit veiled, So we can't really criticize them too much for being not sure of what the kingdom of God was like. It was was types. Types is like David was a type of Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. Jacob is a type of Christ. And so then we look at the tabernacle and all the, the laws and things. They were just shadows of that which is true coming. And so we need to be careful. This is why they're confused. They're not understanding. To them, and to the disciples as well, Jesus is changing the rules in the middle of the game. They didn't understand what was happening here. The good news of the kingdom, then he goes to sense the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God refers to the fact that the promises of the Old Testament that was written about are now being fulfilled. So the Old Testament is saying, here are some promises that are coming. Now they're being fulfilled, though. Through the kingdom of God. Thomas Schreiner notes or writes, and I believe it here might be on the monitor to help you follow along. He says that the new era has arrived. The proclamation of the good news of the kingdom has commenced, has began, especially with the coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah proclaimed the coming of the kingdom, the good news that God would reign over his people in a saving way. That a new exodus was coming, a new creation was dawning. Israel would see the king in his beauty and Jerusalem would be saved. A new David would arise and deliver the people of God. These kingdom promises were beginning to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he emphasized to John the Baptist and proclaimed at the outset of his ministry. You see, when Jesus says the kingdom of good news and the kingdom of God, he says all those things that you've heard about, that you've read about, that you've studied, that you've memorized, it's now being fulfilled. I'm not really changing the rules of the game. This is not a new game. We're playing the same game by the same rules. You are misunderstanding. You see, when Jesus asserts here, and this is the thing, when he asserts that everyone forces his way into the kingdom, that... That is a confusing statement. We almost think of like a kingdom with walls and gates. Maybe watching Lord of the Rings last night, uh, the, the, the last one, last uh, the rise of the king, or the well, I can't remember the title of it, but you understand. And, they're, and, the, and the orcs are trying to break down the big gate. And then they have to finally call in the big guns to finally break it down. And you think, is that how people are trying to get in the kingdom of God? And you might think, well, wait, is that about works? See, that's kind of what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to get into the kingdom by forcing their way in it through self-righteousness. But Jesus says there's a different way. So how do we understand forces in his way into it? Well, he's really describing the enthusiastic drive of those that are determined to enter the kingdom of God. Why are the tax collectors and sinners just being drawn to him? Because they enthusiastically want to be accepted by God and enter in. You see, the religious leaders, they had put up not only tall walls, but in them. But they've done everything they could to keep people from getting into the kingdom of God by adding all these rules and traditions and regulations to the law of God. See, they were keeping people out. You don't belong. They, we deserve to choose who gets in and, gets who, and who gets out or who stays out. And Jesus says, no, there, there are people who are drawn to this. They want to get into it. People are clamoring to hear Jesus teach and heal. He is comparing the re- reaction of the religious leaders with the zeal of the sinners and the tax collectors. You hear religious leaders, you are rejecting it. But these people are clamoring to get in it. The ESV study Bible notes that the phrase, everyone forces his way into it, means that everyone is forcefully urged into it. This echoes the teaching of Jesus in one prayer about the kingdom of God. When he tells the kingdom of God is like a banquet in which the master commands his servants to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. See, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples and apostles and those that have maintained the gospel. That is what that's what it means there. In, in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, we are to urgently urge people. Is that, is that, was that a phrase? We'll, we'll, we'll let it go. We are to urgently compel people to come into the kingdom. Please come. Let me show you what the kingdom of God is. You cannot get it by good works. You cannot be by, by just living a good life. It's like the prophets of old in John the Baptist Jesus has been calling the people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. All are invited, but only a few are accepting of that free offer. We see this very clearly in the New Testament with the tax collectors versus the religious leaders. Again, speaking of Thomas Schreiner, he writes this coming on the monitor. The coming of the kingdom means that it is an hour of decision. And let me tell you that our decision is here today. Interest into the kingdom is not automatic. You and I must be adopted into the family of God. We are not born naturally into the kingdom. Everyone must choose whether he or she will follow Jesus, which means that all must make a radical decision for the kingdom. And as we come to this point here in Luke 16, the religious leaders are not willing to to do that. They choose to not follow Jesus. Unfortunately, they refuse it. To them, the message of the kingdom is contrary to the law. Hence, they think, you're changing the rules. We're not even playing the same game, Jesus. However, they're sadly mistaken. Jesus is not abolishing the law, or preaching a different message, or changing the rules, or trying to play a game by a different name. He just emphasizes here that even if all the cosmos were to be destroyed, God's word will stand. The game is still the same. The promises are still the same. He even points out that every small command and promise of the law will be fulfilled. No one can void the word of God. The problem is that by rejecting Jesus... The religious leaders were actually rejecting the very law and the prophets that they attested that they they adhered to. They're actually rejecting Yahweh Himself. What they refused to acknowledge is that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised last prophet, the king of all kings, the final priest that was promised. By the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains the promises of God to redeem His children from their sin and to make all things new and whole again, to rectify all that went wrong. You and I understand each and every day as we wake up that this world is broken, that something is terribly wrong. But it's only Jesus that can fix it. The New Testament contains the proclamation that those promises are now filled. Again, looking at the monitor, we see promises such as Isaiah 33:17. 17. Your eyes, he says to Israel, will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. This is written at a time when Israel is going in some turmoil. This is a time where they're, they're also being told that they are going to be wrenched from their land. But he says, one day you will see Jerusalem and you will see Jerusalem grow. As your king comes in Zephaniah chapter three. This is during the same type of time. He says, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and they shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue for they shall gaze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, that's speaking of Jerusalem. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Jesus is saying that time is arriving. It is here. I am that king. Here is my beauty. You must accept it. The Old Testament is filled with promises such as these of the kingdom of God. This is what the Hebrew children had been praying for and anticipating for generations, for a millennia and more. However, most did not accept the good news of the kingdom, the words of Christ. They were not happy about the arrival of the kingdom. They wanted the kingdom but only the one made in their image. Get that. Same way for us today. We all want a God, but we want a God made in our image. You ever hear that phrase? Well, I believe in God. I just don't believe in the God of the Christians. I don't want that type of God. I don't want a God who would, who would, who would send someone to hell. I, I don't want a God who would cause someone to suffer. And those are difficult concepts that we actually will look at next week. Some may say, well, I don't want to serve or love or worship a God that would give cancer to a young child. We understand that. Those are some very difficult situations and many more. Some of you have experienced those. But that still is the loving, kind God who is sovereign over all things. And every choice and decision that he has made is good and, and wise and good for us. And that is hard to understand. But they want a a kingdom that's one of their own making. They want one that demanded nothing more than their own self-righteousness and self-justification. In other words, I am a good person. I deserve to go to heaven. I think several weeks ago we shared that that quote from Bloomberg, the former governor or mayor of New York. Where he says, I'm heading straight to the front line when I get into heaven. Because of all the good things I've done. I'm sorry, that man is going to find the gates of heaven are going to be barred against him. And nothing is going to change that. Again, Thomas Schreiner writes that the coming of the kingdom is actually a time of rejoicing, but it's a time of crisis for all. And let me share with you, the Bible is the word of God and all of its laws and precepts are good. They rejuvenate the heart. But however, the preaching of God's word is also going to be a time of crisis where you are going to have to make a decision. Will you seek the kingdom of God or are you going to seek the kingdom of fill in the blank? Even for us Christians, We make that choice each and every moment of our life. That's why we say we want to develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Because we know that it is a battle. Even maybe this moment you're still battling some things that are going on in the world. And you've brought them in here and you're struggling with them. That's why we want to pray for you. We want to encourage with you. We want to encourage you. We want to challenge you. and, and, And invite you to share those burdens. Do not carry them alone. But we want a kingdom of our own making. We want a kingdom in which we get to declare how we can get in and when we can get in. It's a time of crisis. You can't serve two masters Jesus taught and it's what he's accusing them of. The arrival of the kingdom of God requires a radical decision. And I pray that you've made that decision today. If not, then would you do so this morning? The Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus did not come to abolish law, but to proclaim its inevitable fulfillment. Schreiner notes that the law is actually understood in the fullest sense when we see that it all has pointed to Christ all along. And now I know I'm about to get the smirks because you understand I'm going to talk about the story of the Bible. And this is what we see. The story of the Bible is nine simple words. The prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. I know you've heard this too much from me, but again, I want to get it to you. The prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. There's a reason why that story is so endearing to others. One of the the largest TV shows that I do not recommend is all about dragons and people slaying dragons. All girls want to be princesses, and all boys want to slay dragons. Well, let me see. All men want to slay dragons as well. Give us a sword and give us something to fight. All All women want to be accepted and adored and respect and in that way and loved that that story is more than just something that disney came up with or asap or someone else in years past it's the true story of the bible it's the heartbeat of the bible found in the gospel the gospel is the heartbeat of the bible it's through the bible that we learn who the dragon is he first comes in as, as as a snake First you see that the king creates a beautiful world, right? Puts two people in it, a man and a woman. It says, now be fruitful, multiply, fill this garden, let it grow. Take care of it, have dominion. Make sure it grows. But then the dragon, as I said, enters first as a stake into the garden, destroying all that God had created. As man rebels against his creator, throwing the whole world, all of creation, into sin into the penalty of death. But then as we read through the Old Testament, there's a promise right after the fall in Genesis 3.15 of a prince. It doesn't use that term prince yet, but it uses the theme of a prince who is going to come and is going to come and slay that dragon. We see that in Revelation. And he's going to win the girl. Who's the girl? It's the church. It's the bride of Christ, as we read earlier in our scripture reading. Who's the church? It's all those that God has adopted into his family. It's his children. And so we have to understand that the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes, he is that prince. And he has slain that dragon. And he has won that girl. And that is still happening as you and I come and we live out our lives each and every day. That should give us strength. The dragon may be winning some battles today, but he, ha- he hasn't won the war. He has defeated enemy. We need to recognize that we are the, his bride. We are worth being saved. He desires us. One key truth that you and I must understand is that the Old Testament is still relevant. For without the Old Testament, we would not have a strong foundation to understand who the prince is, who the dragon is. Why does he need to win a girl? Who is the girl? Any attempt to unhitch the Old Testament is not only unbiblical, wrong, but it's satanic. And I think we need to regain that word. We've kind of lost that. We don't like to use that. But there are things that are going on in this world that are demonic. And they're pointed straight at your children. It's satanic. All idols are satanic at origin. And you and I must understand that the principles of this world are satanic. He's called the prince of the power of this air for a reason. And you and I are not fighting school boards. We're not just fighting politics. We're not just fighting someone who has different. We are fighting those things that are wrong and demonic. And any attempt to unhitch the Bible and say that it's not relevant today or it's no good today is demonic in its influence. How do you know that? That was Satan's first thing. Has God really said? He causes you to doubt God's word. He causes you to doubt God's goodness. And he causes you to doubt God's character. to teach this principle. So I've been all this so we can get to the verse that's going to be very difficult to talk about. To teach this principle and to demonstrate the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, Jesus makes a strong statement that serves as an object lesson that shows that they are not faithful to the law and prophets. They may say, Jesus, you've changed the rules, you've changed the game. He says, wait a second, no, I haven't. You just never understood the game in the first place. You never read the rule book. You were making your own rules up. Have you ever played with someone like that? And you say, well, here's the rules. Oh, well, I don't play it that way. You can't, you might be able to do that at home and our community group, but you cannot do that with the kingdom of God. You don't get to make it up as you go along. So to teach them that, Jesus gives them a strong statement to show that now he's playing the same game. They're the ones that are in error. So read silently at Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, whoever divorces, or everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this this seems so out of whack with why Jesus is putting this here. It makes no sense. But you have to understand, he's trying to point out the hypocrisy and the error of their ways. They say they adhere to law, but reality is, I'm going to point out, they are not. And now, know this is an uncomfortable statement and command. Even in a church this size, we will have those that have left their wives and remarried or vice versa. We do have divorces here. Or your child a divorce. I pray that today that you're not in a battle of divorce. So, I want to approach this topic gently, but also correctly, as this is a command from the creator of the universe. Typically, we just skip this verse, but that's why we do expositional preaching bit by bit, verse by verse, passage by passage, because it's important. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Deuteronomy 24, and I want to set the foundation real quickly. This here is a command from the creator of the universe. Jesus uses this principle to point out that the Pharisees who claim to uphold the law were actually guilty of voiding it by their own teaching. See, they're saying Jesus is voiding and trying to abolish the law. He's changing the rules. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You're the one who's guilty of doing that. Deuteronomy chapter 24, look at verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she's then found no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now that phrase is going to become very important. Found indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends out her out of the house. And she departs out of the house. And if she goes to become another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce. So she's divorced twice and puts her in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her out to be his wife, the former, the husband, not husband number one, may not, may not uh, remarry her. Uh, he may not again take her as his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination for the Lord. And you should not bring, bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now, since the giving of the law, the Hebrew children have added and subtracted and made all sorts of loopholes in order to get out of their marriage commitments. Sounds very familiar today. The religious leaders permitted men to divorce their wives for almost any cause. Going back to that phrase. You made, uh, when, he find, when she finds no favor because she's found some indecency. They had taken that word indecency which used to meant that, hey, at the day of marriage, he found out that she was not a virgin. Then you can tell, this is what Joseph did to Mary when she was pregnant. He found indecency of her and he wanted to divorce her in his heart. He's saying, I'm going to have to divorce her. The angel came and said, No, this is not of man, this is of God. Remember that story? So that's what's happening here. But, but the Hebrew men had changed in decency to meet anything in which the woman ticked him off. If she burnt the food, kept the house unclean, did some type of thing that made him displeased with her, he could then divorce her. And then what would happen? Well, what, what would a woman do in those days? And th- this, is, this is not biblical, but it's just, it's just what was happening to those. That woman had, would have no source of income. No one to take care of her. So she would marry another man who would take care of her. And so he's saying, but listen, if that man either dies or then he divorces her because she does burn the food or can't keep a clean house, then the first man can't take her back. Now, they had been looking for a way and just were divorcing wives left and right. Uh, By the way, don't we have something like that? No-fault divorce now. We've got something even worse. It used to be you had to sue for divorce, but thanks to Ronald Reagan, governor of California back in the day, had no-fault divorce. You can just divorce people just because, I'm not going to be able to say irreconcilable differences. Now she burnt the food, I'm going to divorce her. Yeah? Well, he doesn't put the toilet seat down. I'm going to divorce you. And it happens. Well, I don't know if it actually happens, but... But you can almost see that. Now, this command to stay married and not to divorce and remarry is based on three facts that are given in Genesis. And I'm going to go through these a little bit quicker because my time is coming close. Genesis 128, Jesus or God, Jesus, I can say the same, says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, so man was to be fruitful and multiply the earth when he was created. This is your job. You are to stand and you are to create and fill and multiply this, this world. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is good for man not to be alone. After Adam uh, names all the animals, he sees that there is no one to help him to fill and multiply. There was no one that was compatible. So God says, I will give you a woman to be your helpmate, to be compatible so that you could fill and multiply the earth and then do the things that I've given you to do. That's the second one, Genesis 2.18. But then we go to Genesis chapter 2, 23 through 24 is that when God gives him the, 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 the woman, the first marriage, the man said, This is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's compatible, she is like me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's what woman means. What is a woman? It is someone who's been taken out of man. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. If you ever Bibles underline that phrase or write it down, they shall become one flesh. That's so important because what marriage does is not some type of contract that two people make. that As long as we enjoy each other, we're together. But if not, then we're eating, we can just walk away. You're becoming something that is metaphysical in, in some ways there's a way in which we become one flesh that's how god sees us even though we may not see that we may see our partners as re- uh, recyclable that's not how god sees there's something that happens in heaven that where we become one flesh jesus clearly points out their error and reminds them of god's law concerning marriage when he says do not divorce and remarry he says it is not or he doesn't say not do that but he says but if you do that that's adultery It's not Jesus who's voiding the law, but they themselves. Though Luke does not include as much teaching as Matthew and Mark on this subject of divorce and remarriage, he just leaves a simple statement. It leaves no doubt of God's plan for man and woman for marriage. Jesus declares that both the active and passive partner are guilty of adultery. In other words, the man who has committed adultery, he may divorce... The woman who is the innocent party, if she remarries, he says, you too then are, are guilty of adultery. This is tough language. This is tough words, especially in our current, divor- our current culture as divorce and remarriage are rampant. Now, one marriage counselor remarks that the top three reasons for divorce are breakdown in communications, lack of forgiveness, and immature spiritually and relationally. And I, and I agree there's a, that those are three major reasons why. But scripture does does state that sexual immorality and desertion are the only legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. So if someone were to say, well, does the Bible give any reason or any way in which I can divorce? Uh, Two. for, For sexual immorality and desertion. And desertion needs to be very careful because we, uh, in, in our sphere, has taken desertion, which meant typically it meant an unbelieving husband says, "I'm not going to live with a Christian," and that unbelieving husband or husband leaves, or vice versa, uh, or, or husband you know uh, takes off, and maybe even begins a new family somewhere. We've taken desertion a little bit like the indecency, and we've we've come away from quite a bit of it. But this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, "I'm going to give you two reasons." However. In the end, we need to see that there's only one reason for divorce. And that's because of the hardness of someone's heart. Paul writes, or uh, Sin Schreiner states that the bond between a man and a woman was to be exclusive and permanent. Provision is made for divorce. However, divorce is never ideal. Still, in some situations, it's permissible. Let me go back to Matthew 19:8. Here on the monitor, I jumped here. Sorry, Ben. But Jesus says we need to recognize that even in the course of sexual immorality or even desertion, Jesus said because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, God's desire is for us to labor for our marriages to fulfill our commitment, to trust that what God put together, he can repair. Now, this hardened heart can come from the one who does not repent of their sexual immorality, as well as the one who, when that person does, will not forgive forgive or give grace. Even if they're the innocent party in it. So all divorce is always from a hardened heart. And that hardened heart is sinful. And we need to understand that. But let me share with you just a short pastoral word of encouragement and challenge on this matter. Too often that we as Christians have treated divorce as the second greatest sin. You know, there's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then there's divorce. That is shameful and unbiblical. Let me say it again. That is shameful and unbiblical. We are called to weep with those who weep and to comfort those in affliction. May God forgive us of any of that type of attitude, for it is unbiblical and unkind and unloving. And I know that there are times that maybe we've grown up in churches that have treated people like that. We, we need to resolve that that is sin and we need to repent of that. If you're here this morning and you have been divorced and remarried, understand that God has called you to repentance. You need to recognize from these past of scripture that that was sin. Confess that sin and, and bask in his forgiveness. And grace but let me also say this because this is a misnomer that many have made too you need to understand that God has blessed your remarriage as well as any children that come from that union those children are still blessed by God. God still now calls you to be faithful in that second marriage third marriage your seventh marriage It's not God's ideal for you. It's not God's perfect plan for you. Well, it is his perfect plan in some sense. I won't go more into detail. But that is not God's calling for you. However, as we're in there, we're to bask in his forgiveness. As we repent of that past sin, recognizing that it is a sin, God then blesses your now union and the children that come from it. You need to dedicate yourself, if you're remarried after divorce, you need to dedicate yourself to loving your spouse and praying for the sanctification of your marriage. That's kind of what we got from our scripture reading. We're to present our wives as, as, as vessels of mercy, vessels of grace. If you're here this morning, but listen to this, please, married couples. If you're here this morning and you're in, under immense pressure in your marriage, you're struggling. It's now turned to combat, open combat. Your children see it, your friends see it, your families see it. Others that are outside will tell you to leave the bum, right? They may tell you, you know what? Your wife is just not good enough for you. Please go to Christ. Go to Christ who can heal and repair your marriage. Do not give up. Do not let divorce enter into the conversation. Donna and I made that very early. We will never speak of divorce in such, well, you know what, I'm thinking about divorce or divorce. It's a word that does not belong in our speaking of each other or towards each other, especially in anger. Don't let it enter into the conversation. It's not an option. Understand that it is Satan who is your enemy, not your spouse. He desires to destroy your character and draw you away from God. Do not let Satan get that foothold. The principle that we learn from these two statements of Christ is that the law and the gospel go hand in hand. He is not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it perfectly. The law could not save. It could not change the heart. But the Israelites were still called to obey. It was how they were going to enter into the kingdom of God, how it was going to be opened up to them. We're not saved by our works, but by the works of Christ. We call this the active obedience of Christ. In his 33 years, he obeyed the law of God perfectly. In all essence, he never thought ill of his parents. he never disobeyed his parents, he never hurt someone else or coveted. He never did any of those things. It just seems uh, hard for us to understand that, but that's what he did in his act of obedience. You and I, when he died, and we accept Christ, that's the obedience that you and I get. That's the righteousness. See, when I stand before God, it's not the righteousness of my own, it's not my own self righteousness, but it's the righteousness he sees of Christ who obeyed God perfectly, fulfilling the law perfectly. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 of them. Jesus did that on our behalf. And that's why you and I can enter into the kingdom of God. And that's why we urgently compel you and, and, and just ask you, please come into the kingdom. For Christ has earned all that you need. But let me give you on a side note, we're here to close. Is you and I, when he speaks of our marriage, the reason why he chooses, I believe, that passage to show their hypocrisy... It's because our marriages are intended, listen to this, I'm closing here, but I need you to listen to this. Our marriages are intended to be a visible, living expression of the gospel, of the kingdom of God. Again, go in Ephesians 5. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it. I want you to go to verse 32 there. And I want you to underline this passage. He says, wives submit, husbands love, right? Husbands are the active ones in this thing. We are to love our wives. We are, what does he say here? We are to, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. But look at verse, he goes in in verse 30. Let's verse 31. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. He's, He's given a creation order here. Then verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound that, that one flesh, how we become one flesh is profound. Paul, the most intellectual Christian that probably ever walked this earth said, this mystery is profound. And what he's saying, he says, I am saying that it refers to the church and Christ, the Christ, the church. Let each one of you love his wife and self and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why? Because when you and I live in marriages that are faithful and loving and kind to each other, we are giving out the gospel, the kingdom of God. We show that we are adhering to not only the law of Moses, but also the rule of God that came before the law of Moses. At the very creation of Adam and Eve and the first marriage that came together. Our marriages are expression of how much Christ loves the church. How much Christ loves those who are gathered together to submit to him. So let us understand that our marriage is more than just some two people who said, "Well, we got together, but we were young." Now look at us. Life is much more difficult today. And look at these kids you gave me. Oh my goodness. They act just like you. Let us realize that's the gospel. That's the gospel your children will hear and see first. Let us not be the Pharisees who say one thing but do another. As we bring this message close, let us with joy receive the good news of the gospel, even words as tough as verse 18. Let us proclaim to our families and friends that Jesus has come to reconcile us to God. Amen. Let us not only proclaim this with our lips, but also with our hearts and actions. To God be the glory great things he has done. For God is faithful to his promises. Let us hold on to the Word of God. He has not changed the game. He has not changed the rules in the middle. He has been proclaiming the promises of God that are now fulfilled. Would you come? to that kingdom today. Seek it with your whole heart. And may God show his favor and bless you as you come into the kingdom and live out the kingdom of God. Every head bowed and every head closed as the worship team comes up and Randy. Again, we just want to do, uh, just to pause for a moment to consider these words. Consider the words of Christ. They're very difficult today. But then also take the moment to just pause and Pray. And ask the Spirit to help me to respond. Maybe you're one here that has not heeded the words of God. You're trying to make a kingdom or a God or a Savior of your own making. Trying to rely on your own self-righteousness and self-justification. Self-just- Please don't. Next week we'll share with you that you'll get nowhere with that. The gates of heaven will be barred. And you'll spend eternity in hell. If you're here today and you've been married and, or divorced and remarried, then come to see the truth of God's word. Show repentance, confession, and then dedicate yourself in marriage today. If you're here today and you're struggling in your marriage, seek help. We here as the elders, we're here to help you, to counsel you through, to strengthen you. Let us bind together not to be judgmental and uncaring, but loving and caring for those that God has brought into our family. Would you respond to the Holy Spirit's call this week? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.